All right, if you would look in your bulletins or open up your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 16. We're going to look at a kind of a somewhat familiar passage, but maybe we can look at it with new eyes and a new approach here this morning. Um, Matthew 6, verses 19 through 34. Today is the second part of a two-part sermon series, the shortest series we've ever preached here, and it's titled Kingdom Calling. You know, last week we looked at we looked at the kingdom that calls us, and we saw that it is priceless. Why is that? Because the kingdom of heaven is God's only means of renewing and restoring and redeeming this broken and sinful world, along with redeeming people made in his image. The king of, kingdom of heaven is so priceless that God gave his only son so that it may come into existence. Today we look at the call of the kingdom. If you are a Christian, you've not just received forgiveness from God, but you have received a call from Christ as well. A call to an unfettered devotion to Christ and his kingdom. A call to seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. If we're honest, it's uh, easier said than done, isn't it? Our hearts are easily led astray by the things of this world, and our lives are prone to worry. What are we to do? Let's listen to our Savior as he teaches us. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value? than they. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the eternal truth of your scriptures. Um, We thank you for a savior who's not afraid to speak to us about the things that lead us astray most and the things that cause us most worry. May we be humble in your presence right now as we ponder how these words can be applied to our lives. And and may your spirit um, move to his proper effect upon our souls, we pray. Amen. Is America materialistic? Are we as a whole preoccupied with material things and comforts? Is America anxiety-ridden? 40% of adults suffer from anxiety. Does this fact shed any light on how crippled we are by worry? David Brooks, in his bestseller titled On Paradise Drive, digs into what makes America great, but also what makes us pioneers of personal satisfaction. Here's a little bit of a blurb from the back cover. He writes, Take a look at Americans in their natural habitat, guys shopping for barbecue grills, doing that special walk men do in the presence of lumber. (laughs) Super-efficient soccer uber-moms who chair school auctions, organize PTAs, and weigh less than their kids. And suburban chain restaurants, which if they merged would be called Chili's Olive Garden Hard Rock Outback Cantina. Are we as shallow as we look? Many around the world see us as the great bimbos. Sure, Americans work hard and energetic, but that is because we are money-hungry and we don't know how to relax. Another vignette, he, he makes this a little more illustrated. Bear with me as I... As I read it, here's what he says. By and large, Americans are utter failures when it comes to leading the simple life which we profess to desire. You may start the day with noble intentions in your heart and one of those simplicity magazines by your side. You may tell yourself that today you're going to renounce material things. You're going to slow down and savor the moment. So you break out the seaside scent candles, fill up the clawfoot tub with fluoridated water and tub tea, and soak with a volume of Robert Frost in your hand and some almond-scented body wash on the shelf. But then the bathroom renovation fantasies start crowding into your brain, and along comes the second home longings. To clear your mind, you realize you need a country place in the mountains where you can get away from it all, or home in the Hamptons, and just a couple more big financial scores so you can carry that soul-saving second mortgage. And before long, you're back in the land of desire. You've been sucked in by the alluring availability of increased earnings and the narcotic of potential capital gains. You have returned to the realm of buying and selling and earning and investing, The sheer wealthiness of American life has swallowed you back up. 
We are materialistic and full of worry. And sadly, it's not just for Americans at large, it's for Christians too. All across America, when the alarm clocks beat, Christians rise alongside their unbelieving neighbors and enter the day with hearts that are set on delivering just one more piece of the successful life puzzle. And when they go home and lay their heads down at night, they worry if tomorrow will be any better. Jesus has a word for us all today. The gospel calls us to a full-time devotion to Christ and his kingdom. And so we're to have undivided hearts and faithful heads. We are to honor God with our wealth and to trust God with our worries. But how do we do that? First, how do we obtain undivided hearts? You know, right at this very moment, there are athletes preparing for the 2016 Olympic Games in Brazil, and they're preparing with a singular focus. They're putting on the final touches of their training so they compete, can compete in the Olympics. Every minute has been planned, some, some, some of them years in advance. Video is taken in order to just shave off a fraction of a second. Nutritionists and exercise physiologists and sports medicine professionals are met with on a regular basis. And while family members or friends are off eating and drinking into the wee hours of the morning, these athletes must sleep eight to ten hours a night, and they do. They have treasured the Olympic Games for so long they can almost taste it. Therefore, they will have no distractions. Everything that doesn't add up to success is stripped away. There is a singular focus. My friends, Christ calls us to a similar devotion to him and his kingdom. He knows that staying focused is so hard in our broken world. So with great love, he teaches his disciples and us. He teaches us about two treasures and two eyes and two masters. First, two treasures. We see these two treasures in verses 19 through 21. There, there's treasure on earth and there is treasure in heaven. In Jesus' day, people buried their coins in boxes in the ground. And, and the bronze or the, or the copper would become corroded and it would lose its value. Also, much wealth was in clothing. And... Um, very expensive clothing, but all you need is a couple of moths to, to ruin that. Here Jesus highlights the futility in treasuring up possessions. If moth or rust do not get your treasure, thieves would break in and take all that you had. Jesus is warning us that material possessions and the satisfaction and the comfort they bring are ultimately unsatisfying. And I think for all of us, that makes sense. You don't have to be a Christian to go, yeah, I get that, Jesus. Yeah, things break. I, you know, my mom's fourth iPhone, you know. Uh, yeah, it's not good to live for possessions. I get it, Jesus, you're right. And Christians, we nod too. And then we see that commercial for the luxury SUV, and you, in your mind, you're figuring out, the payment's a little bit of a stretch, but I can, I can probably make it work. Or we hear about the new MacBook Pro. Did you know it comes in rose gold? What? Really? I want one. And then we convince ourselves that we really need a Norwegian cruise. We deserve it, after all. It's been nine months since Cozumel. 
It's out of love, my friends, that Jesus teaches us. Instead of laying up treasure on earth, we have something far more productive and satisfying. We are able to lay up treasure in heaven. And understand this, nothing can get at your treasure once it is stored there, and it is eternally secure. What is treasure in heaven? Treasure in heaven is anything you pursue that has eternal heavenly consequences. Every time you say no to sin and and have a little uh, victory over sin uh, and say no to temptation, that's, that's treasure in heaven. Every time you speak of the gospel to a co-worker and they nod their head, it's treasure in heaven. Every time you promote justice or reconciliation, that is treasure in heaven. You know, I've got treasure in heaven right now. Uh, I became a Christian, and one of the things I began doing was sharing uh, my belief in Christ with family members. One of them was my old and ailing father. I don't know how many times I've shared the gospel with him, but finally one day it made sense and he, 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 he came to faith in Christ and he entered the kingdom. Now my father literally is in heaven and he is a treasure there awaiting me. Christian, we are to treasure Christ in his kingdom above all else. We've been called to be heralds and and ambassadors for Christ in his kingdom. If you belong to Christ, this is your calling. Therefore, you must treasure Christ and his kingdom above all else. See, unless you treasure Christ and his kingdom, your heart will be somewhere else. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In the Bible, the heart refers to the center of one's being. It's one's emotions and reason and will. That which you treasure most, your heart will beat for exclusively. I want to speak to our younger members here today. Today, lots of people will try to defend you, to define you by the clothes you wear, the things you own, the music you listen to, How much your parents spend on you. The battle for your heart has already begun. The temptation to find your identity and your happiness and treasure on earth will always be pressing in on you. But there's hope. Hear the upward call of Christ and his kingdom. Today, settle in your mind that no earthly treasure will ever compare to the treasure of knowing Christ and belonging to his kingdom. And then commit the eyes of your heart to treasuring him. That's the two treasures. Treasures on earth, treasure in heaven. Honestly now, to which one is your heart devoted? Now for the two eyes. Here's what Jesus wants us to understand in this kind of confusing little passage on eyes. That treasuring Christ in his kingdom not only has benefit for us in the future, but offers us true benefit and blessing in the present. What's Jesus saying? In verse 22, 23, he says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if the eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? 
Here Jesus is saying that the body finds direction for good or for ill through the eyes. A healthy eye gives positive direction for all of life. A bad eye gives a negative direction to all of life. See, a healthy eye is characterized by an ability to esteem God and not just believe that God exists, but to see that the proper response of the creature is to wrap his or her life up in the creator with loving devotion and allegiance to God alone and and, and committing to being transformed by his grace to live in holiness right now and in goodness of life. A healthy eye values the word of God and seeks to live a Christ-like life. When the eye is good uh, and healthy and it sees in this manner, it produces a positive effect in you. Your whole body becomes full of light. That is, you will radiate the goodness and the grace of God. And you will find joy and delight in the life that you are living. And you will live with great meaning and purpose. And you will genuinely honor God and causes goodness to be seen by others. But if the eye is bad, your whole life will be transformed by darkness. The person whose eye is bad at a young age will, over time, exhibit greater and greater darkness in their life. It's true, isn't it? A man who idolizes wealth and power at a young age will not become a nicer, more generous person as they get older. Unless the grace of God penetrates his heart and and gives him new life in the kingdom, the man's trajectory is towards greater and greater darkness. That's the two eyes. Now for the two masters. Jesus ends this first section with verse 24. There we read, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, in Jesus' day, this reference to one slave um, trying to save, to serve two masters would be abundantly obvious. It's, it's Hypothetically, if a slave were to have two masters, he would end up really choosing one over the other and play favorites. He would give priority priority to one master while giving the other his leftovers. In our passage, the word translated money is the Aramaic word, mamona, which is we translate mammon. Mammon is more than money. It refers to all of a person's personal possessions and resources. This is your checking account, your saving account, your IRA, your 401k, your, your home, your boat, your car, your timeshare, your electronic pool cover, all that stuff. Jesus is saying what we need to hear. As much as you might like to serve your personal possessions and God, you cannot. You will be devoted to one to the detriment of the other. See, we modern Western Christians want to believe that we really can serve two masters, that we can be that we can successfully chase after treasure on earth and God at the same time. Craig Blomberg makes a scathing observation that we'd be wise to listen to. He says this: 
The greatest danger to Western Christianity is not prevailing ideologies such as Marxism, Islam, the New Age movement, or humanism, but rather the all-pervasive materialism of our affluent culture. He says that the greatest threat to your walking with Christ is the affluent culture in which we live in. He goes on to say, we try so hard to create heaven on earth and to throw in Christianity when convenient as another small addition to the so-called good life. Jesus proclaims that unless we are willing to serve him wholeheartedly in every area of life, but particularly with our material resources, we cannot claim to be serving him at all. I don't know about you, but that hits home to me. When you look at your own heart, what do you see as its treasure? It's hard to do, I know. None of us like to look into our hearts and find materialistic treasures. So we all, myself included, need to regularly pause and interrogate ourselves. If you're married, do this as husband and wife. It's good to do together, right? Like David in Psalm 139, we need to cry, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Need help with this process? Just you know, take a look at your calendar, your checkbook, or your credit card statement. That kind of shows what we're devoted to. Interrogate, you know, what are your giving patterns? Do you, I mean, do you have a giving plan that, that really honors God? A giving plan that demonstrates that you treasure the kingdom above all else? Do you regularly say no to good things so that you can say yes to better kingdom things? See, a mature Christian is one who sees himself or herself differently. They've heard Jesus' teaching elsewhere that we are stewards. <laughs> they understand that they are a steward of 100% of the possessions and, and the income that God has given them. And so the mature Christian doesn't sit down and ask, you know, of all that God has given them, what they're going to set aside at the end of the month to give to the kingdom purposes. No, they begin by saying, uh, it all belongs to God 100%. How much will I need in order to live off of? And then the rest is available for the kingdom and Christ's purposes. I'm afraid most people don't look at things that way. But the kingdom calls us to such a commitment. You know, I'm convinced that every Christian in America, if given a, a few years and a calculator, can get themselves in a position where they're not just giving 10%, but 20, 30 or more to the kingdom work. Who, who in two years can't sell their home downsize into a smaller one and have a smaller mortgage? Who in two years can't attack their credit card debt and, and pay it all off if they really were serious about it? Who in two years can't restructure their spending habits in order to free up a little more for the kingdom? Each of us here, myself included, has a responsibility to streamline our budgets in ways that honor Christ and his kingdom. But you see, it's not so much a matter of income or ability. 
It's a matter of our hearts and what our hearts treasure, the masters that we've chosen to serve. It goes much deeper. Now, some of you are thinking, wow, if I really live this way, like really all in and, and, uh, and, and, and seek to, to, to live in a way like this, what about my college uh, savings plan for my kid? What about, what about retirement? What about those unexpected expenses? It's as if Jesus knows our minds. He shifts gears from wealth to worry. Our second point, last point, tries to address this question. How do we obtain faithful heads? How do we come to trust God with what normally makes us worry? You know, the recent study out of Finland found this, uh, the gearheads here will appreciate this, but um, found this startling truth. Over one-third of a car's fuel consumption is spent overcoming friction. Friction in the engine, friction in the transmission, friction in the drivetrain, friction in the, in the wheels and in the tires. Friction is like a parasite on the power and fuel efficiency of our cars. Now, could it not also be true that anxiety is like a friction in our lives? A parasite upon us that robs us from living for Christ? with full power and efficiency? Jesus knows this, and so he teaches us. Verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Now the therefore points us back into verse 24. Jesus is speaking to his disciples who have already pledged their allegiance not to mammon, but to God and his kingdom. So in other words, he's saying, you serve God, not mammon. Therefore, don't be anxious. He's essentially saying, God is your God. Don't worry. Now that should be enough, right? That should be enough for us. God is your God. Don't worry. But Jesus knows something about the frailty of our minds and our thoughts. And so he gives us multiple reasons. Let's look at those. At the end of verse 5, he says, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? We are not to be anxious because God cares for all things. Food and drink and clothing are just part of life. Jesus argues from the greater to the lesser. If God cares for the greater thing, life, then he certainly cares for the lesser things that sustain us each day. Reason two is that God cares for his creation, for things like birds. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Here Jesus argues from lesser to greater. If God cares for the lesser things, sweet little birds, um, then he will certainly care for us, the greater, more valuable. Birds are very diligent creatures, right? I've never seen like a lazy bird. Yet they don't expend a lot of thoughtful planning for their day, do they? 
The first thing they do when they wake up in the morning isn't fret over where they're going to find their next meal, is it? What is the very first thing the birds do in the morning? I was up at 5 a.m. What do they do? I heard them singing. They sing. They sing to each other. And then they go out and they look for some seeds and some bugs and some worms. And then they eat. And then they fly home. And then they end their day. How do they end their day? Worrying about the next day? No, they sing again to all their friend birds, you know? Jesus is saying that if God, in his providence, feeds simple creatures like birds, then we must have confidence in his care and provision for us. Some of you really need to hear that today, don't you? Reason three is that worry accomplishes nothing. Verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? You know, the truth is, worry actually shortens your life. It cannot add to it. And since worry cannot add anything to our life, we must expend our energy in places where we can actually make a difference for the kingdom of heaven. Instead of worrying about whether we're going to get a promotion tomorrow, we should delight in living in such a way that God's righteousness through us will be promoted tomorrow. Reason four is that God cares for his creation, even lesser things like grass and flowers, 28 through 30. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin and And I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Like the birds in the air he mentioned before, Jesus looks at an even lower part of the created order to draw conclusions. Here he uses uh, flowers and grass. And in in the Old Testament, um, flowers and grass represented brevity and fragility in the human life. From Isaiah 40, we read this, All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Jesus uses flowers and grass to present us with two takeaways. One is this, life is fleeting and feeble. As much as we try to secure ourselves and and keep ourselves away from illness and disease and monetary loss, um, essentially we're helpless in that regard. Now, if that's all Jesus said, then we would be hopeless, would we not? In verse 30, though, Jesus tells us that that though our lives are fragile and fleeting, the powerful and gracious God who created it all will surely much more clothe you, O you of little faith. Jesus is not talking to the faithless. Who's he talking to? His disciples. They trust in Christ. They believe in him. But the problem is that their faith is little. They need a strong faith. If you're here this morning and you confess that worry is a friction in your life, then Jesus says 
you don't have a worry problem. You have a faith or a trust problem. Your solution, though, isn't just to say, oh, I just need more faith. Oh, boy, that preacher got me. I got to have more faith. I won't be worried, right? Implement a few things, you know. It's not enough to commit to greater self-reflection and then just commit to be stronger in your faith. No. What is Jesus' solution? Jesus simply wants us to observe God's care over all creation. Best thing you can do this afternoon would be to sit down and watch the birds. If you don't have any birds, get a bird feeder uh, and, and then come back in a day or two. But sit around, watch the birds, marvel at the flowers and the grass. He wants us to know that plants and animals, they point beyond the creation to the creator who loves us. If God cares for all that, surely, surely he will care for you, his child. In verse 31, Jesus repeats his call not to worry. And then he gives us reason number five, which is your father knows your needs. Verse 31, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Um, now, for us, we're like, what shall we wear? Let me see. I got all kinds of things going out for dinner. No, that's not it. It's like, you know, it's like I only got one one outfit back in the old days, and it's like falling apart, all right? It's a little bit different problem, right? Those are first century problems, and we've got 21st century problems. All right. Did I just coin that? I didn't, did I? Okay. Anyway. Food and drink and clothing are essentials to our lives. Jesus doesn't forbid us uh, to work to obtain them. He forbids us placing our desire upon them over and above the kingdom that he's called us to. He says that Gentiles, that's the unbelieving world around us, chase after these things. But you and I need not chase after them because the favorable eyes of God are upon us. And he loves us so much that he will give us all that we need. The third command for us is in verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The word first here isn't a marker of time, as in get up in the morning and the first thing you do is have a quiet time and the rest of the day is all for you, right? That's not the meaning of first here. The word first is used in a superlative sense. The kingdom of God and his righteousness are to be our highest priority, our highest aim in life. Our greatest ambition and pursuit in life is Christ and his kingdom. That is to be preeminent over all things. All of the decisions we make, great or small, are to be lined up with the overall reality that you and I live for Christ and his kingdom. Charles Venable once said these convicting words. Everybody wants for the kingdom of God, but few want it first. I don't know about you, that got me when I read that. But my friends, the kingdom is of infinite worth. It is priceless. And we must come to see it as so. 
It is Christ and his kingdom that has given us our greatest joy. There is no greater reality than you can ever experience other than resting under the powerful, kindly rule of your heavenly Father. What the world needs isn't another designer handbag or a thinner MacBook. What the world needs is the kingdom of heaven and the very righteousness of God. And Christian, because you've experienced the welcome into Christ's kingdom, and because you've come to prize his kingdom above all else, you are to be supremely devoted to the kingdom, no matter the cost. And reason number seven is that you can rest assured that as you seek God's kingdom, God will add all that you need to your life. He will provide for all those things you need. In verse 34, Jesus ends with one final exhortation to not be anxious. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We are rarely anxious about today. It's tomorrow that bothers us. Jesus gives us one final reason not to be anxious. Tomorrow we'll have challenges for sure, but let tomorrow be dealt with tomorrow's resources. Today has enough for you to work through. Focus on today. Allow God to strengthen and encourage you today. Pray the Lord's Prayer today. Fill yourself with the hope of the kingdom today. The prospects of living for Christ in his kingdom should be enough to keep our minds and our hands occupied in the present. Each day has sufficient troubles. <laughs> Expend your energies addressing today's troubles and let your heavenly Father care for what lies ahead. All right, so how did Jesus' words challenge you this morning? Do you see evidence that your heart treasures things of this earth? Be reminded where our hope comes from. Do you, like me, know deep down that you, that you really do desire Christ and his kingdom, but you just have a hard time, like me, remaining focused? Let us be reminded that Jesus is not just our teacher. He is our example. Jesus does not call us to a calling that he himself did not share. Jesus, your elder brother and savior, received a call from his heavenly father to seek first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness. God called him to leave the riches of heaven, to leave it, all that the treasure that is there. And he sent his son into a sin-filled, broken world full of hardship and difficulty. In Philippians chapter 2, we read that though Jesus was God and enjoyed all of the riches of his divine existence in heaven, Jesus did not hold on or grasp that treasure. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to. Instead, he emptied himself. He humbled himself. He became a servant so that the kingdom of heaven could come to earth. So you and I could be a part of that. 
When Satan offered Jesus all the world, if he would bow to him, Jesus kept on treasuring his relationship with his heavenly father and desiring to see the kingdom that was yet to come. Jesus continually kept on seeking first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness. Where we have failed, he has succeeded for us. All our failure, he's taken to the cross. All our self-absorption, taken to the cross. All our vain ambition, he's taken it to the cross. All our little faithfulness, that too, taken to the cross. All our cause for worry, he's taken it to the cross. My friends, Jesus gladly left treasure in heaven in order to give you treasure in heaven. How can we now have any other allegiance other than Christ in his kingdom? How can we not say, by your grace, we live for you and your kingdom? I don't know where you are today. I hope you're humbled by Jesus' teaching and that, that we take it to heart. I hope that we interrogate ourselves and that we eradicate any earthly treasure that's on the throne of our hearts this morning and that we respond to God's grace in the appropriate way that we would hear and accept our calling to seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that where we failed, you succeeded, that you're not just our teacher, but our example. And more than that, you are our hope. Um, we long for the day when treasure in heaven becomes reality by, by sight and not just by faith. Until then, fill your people with a renewed understanding of, of the value of the kingdom and of our call to serve you, Christ, and your kingdom, we pray. Amen.